What's going on, Renaissance family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Mad grateful that y'all tuned in with us for our online service. Before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us and you would allow us to have focus and to pay attention and to hear whatever it is that you are telling us. So Lord, I pray for no distractions. I pray for the ambulances to be quiet. I pray for our kids, if, we, if there are kids in the home, to, to behave just for this period of time. And Lord, would you meet us in this moment? In Jesus, let me pray. Amen and amen. So one of the most important and complex questions we can ask about humanity that I can ask about me or you is this. Why is it that when we know the right thing to do, we don't do it? Now, the problem is not information or a lack of information. 99.99% of the time, when I don't do the right thing, it's not because I didn't know what was right. I wanted to do the right thing, but I just didn't do it. And I'm not just talking about small little mistakes. A mistake is pronouncing Malachi Malachi. That's a mistake. But the stuff that I do, they're, they're more deep than that. They're character things. The things that, to be perfectly honest, are kind of embarrassing sometimes when you think about those things about you. This past week, I've been uh, in the wonderful world of online kindergarten with my son. And going into the day, I said, Jordan, he is going through a lot. Yelling at him and losing your temper is not going to help anything. So even if he doesn't want to sit in front of a Zoom screen for five hours, surprise, surprise, don't be too harsh on him. Number one, it never leads anywhere good. All it does is break him down and it makes you feel terrible. Two, it never advances what you want to happen. And yet I woke up that morning and said, I'm not going to do it. 15 minutes into it, I reached across his screen, hit mute and started to yell at him. Now, as soon as I did it, I realized how much of a terrible decision it was again. And I know the right thing to do, but I just can't do it. Now, I know I'm not alone. Uh, I know I've talked to enough people. Uh, one of the best things about being a pastor are all of the conversations I could have with people. And I've realized so many people set out in their mind, in their intention to do the right thing, but yet there's just something in them that stops them from doing the right thing. For some people, it's the way they spend their money. And they know how miserable they felt the last time they spent all of that money trying to impress people that they don't even like. And they swore to never do it again, but yet this, this pull of materialism pulls them in. For other people, it's, it's worry. And you know Jesus says, do not worry. Jesus says, worrying can add a single hour to your life. You know that worry has never solved anything in your life, and it makes you miserable every time you do it, but yet, when the situation arises and there's some ambiguity of how, to, how things are going to uh, wrap up, you start to worry. For others of you, it's, it's lust. And you wake up in the morning and you say, I am not going to do that thing that I did yesterday, or I'm not going to go on that website. And before you know it, you find yourself there again, and you feel miserable. For others of you, it's that you just judge people. And you go into conversation saying to yourself, it doesn't work when I judge people. They've never left the conversation saying, you know what, now that you've judged me, I'm gonna change my entire life. All it does is add some friction to relationships and makes them feel miserable and it makes you feel miserable as well. And over and over and over again, we can go down a very long list, but there are so many things about us that we know they're wrong and we still don't do the right thing. Now, why is that? The answer in scripture might bother you a little bit, but I hope you'll stick with me as we explain it and unpack it. But the answer in scripture tells us, and it confronts us in a little bit, and it tells us that we're in, we are not 
good people that occasionally do bad things. That's not our nature. When scripture talks about us, it tells us that you and I are actually only consistent at being inconsistent. And if you think in your life, uh, there's nothing consistent about us in terms of our, our, our ethic and always consistently 100% of the time doing the things that we want to do. Think about it like this. A lion by nature is a carnivore. You've never watched a nature show where the lions go out for a hunt and there's one lion that's like, you know what? I'm just kind of over the impala. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I just, I want some ceviche or I want some like a nice grilled arugula salad with some peach and some goat cheese and some balsamic on top. Let's go for that today. You'll never see a lion do that because by their nature, they are carnivores. And what you are programmed by nature to do, you do consistently. The reason that you and I don't consistently do the right thing, whatever that right thing is, is because by nature, we're born as something scripture calls sinners. Now, here's one of the most interesting things about this, this topic and this concept. It doesn't even have to be based off of the scripture and their teachings. It can be based off of your own rules. If you were to write your own 10 commandments, I dare you to try this exercise, write your own 10 commandments about what people should and should not do and see if you can keep your own 10 commandments for 24 hours. Most of us couldn't do that. Now, most of us would violate our own commandments because there is something in us that is by our very nature leads us towards something called sin. Now, I want to define what sin is because a lot of times people hear the word sin and they think that you mean that they are as bad as humanly possible, that because we are, are called sinners, then I am as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer or Tom Brady or someone really horrific. But that's not what scripture uh, is saying. It's saying that there is something inside of us that pulls us off course. The word in scripture for sin is a word called hamartia. And hamartia is the same word that they would use in archery, for example, to talk about hitting the bullseye. And hamartia basically means you and I miss the mark. So sin in essence means that there is a mark of God's goodness, his perfectness, uh, his perfection, his holiness, and you and I consistently are to the right and to the left of that. Now, in Psalm 51 and 5, the psalmist David talked about why that is for us. Why is it that you and I are consistently hitting the left and the right, and every now and then we might hit the center, but we're consistently inconsistent in our lives that we don't do the things that we know to do. And here's what David says about why you and I don't do the things that we know are right to do. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, one of the things that I hope that we accomplish today is take some of the inflammatory response that we have when we think about this word called sin. It's not saying that you are making terrible decisions every single day. It's not insulting you. It's not meant to say that you're a terrible person. It's meant to say that there is something inside of us that has been formed inside of us before we even knew it would lead us to be missing the mark. So God's standards are the bullseye, and you and I are always going to hit the left and the right of that. Uh, this past week, I read some stories uh, written by some nurses who spent some time in the neonatal ward in hospitals, and these are working with the smallest of small babies who are fresh out the womb. Uh, one of these nurses uh, talked about children who were born with um, prenatal cocaine exposure. In the 80s, these children were unfortunately referred to as crack babies. So the nurse mentioned that these babies who were born with prenatal cocaine exposure, when they would come out when they were born, 
They would just be crying for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. They were miserable. And it wasn't based off of any decision that they had made. Their mother had made a decision to expose them to cocaine. And as a result, they were infected with an addiction that they themselves could not kick. When scripture talks and says that you and I were shaped in iniquity, as it says in one version, or that we were conceived or that we were sinful from birth, it's saying that we have spiritual foremothers and forefathers that sin has passed down through our lineage. Now, this is a pretty depressing way to start a sermon. I will admit that. But uh, for, for us to truly understand Jesus and why Jesus is such a big deal, we need to understand what sin is. Now, there's generally two camps of people. There's one camp of people who all they want to talk about is sin. And these might be some of the Christians that have rubbed you the wrong way, uh, either in community or if you're not uh, someone who regularly, regularly goes to church. These might be people that you've had very negative interactions with because they are the sin police. They want to catch everybody doing wrong. And the problem with that is they think about sin more than they think about Jesus. Now, there's another group of people, which is equally dangerous, where they don't really think about sin at all. They just basically say, I know that I, you know, I'm doing okay, and hopefully at the last day, God will say, you know what? You did okay. You didn't curse, uh, curse out your, your coworker. You didn't eat the, your roommate's food in the fridge. Come on in. Welcome to the pearly gates. Now, if we minimize the nature of sin, we'll miss Jesus completely. The reason Jesus on the cross is meant to be electrifying and passionate and lead us to worship is because there's supposed to be a real obstacle. And sin is a real obstacle that Jesus did triumph over on the cross, but it is real nonetheless. So Jesus, when he talks about sin, uh, he talks about it as a very real thing and a very powerful thing, not something that you chose either, something that was inside of you and something that is actually controlling our decisions and controlling us and prevents us from doing the things that we know we should be doing. When Jesus talked about sin, here's what he says in John 8 and 34. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now that word is a strong one, slave. Now for obvious reasons, many of us recoil at the concept of slavery. It's, it's one of the most inhumane things that are imaginable. And the reason that we're talking about this today is because as we're going through the book of Exodus, one of the themes that you see is that sin in a lot of ways operates like slavery. And it would do us no good to avoid this topic altogether because I think there's a lot of freedom in confronting it. There's a lot of joy and freedom to be found in going in headfirst and confronting it. So uh, as we are looking at this book of Exodus, I'm really excited to be going through this. Um, we get a look at the power of sin and it's perfectly represented in Exodus 1. Here's what um, we see. Last week, we mentioned that there are a number of themes in the book of Exodus. And one of these themes is that God himself gives real freedom. Like God gives real freedom. Real freedom that draws us closer and closer, closer to him and a real freedom that separates us from our sins. Now, sin all throughout the Bible is represented and um, through this concept of slavery and all so many um, New Testament writers, when they talk about the essence of sin, they talk about it from the concept of slavery. And we see this here in Exodus 1. Uh, let me read a little bit of it to get us on the same page. So Exodus 1 in verse 7, it says, But the Israelites were fruitful 
increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. A new king, who did not know Joseph, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built uh, Pethom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of fieldwork. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So what is going on here in this passage of text in Exodus 1? There are two groups of people. Number one, the children of Israel, because they are the children of a dude named Israel. He was a guy named Jacob who was renamed Israel. And they were living at first in Egypt. And there was a guy named Joseph who was like the second in command. But after Joseph died, a new king came to power and it was a whole new regime in. And they didn't really rock out with the Israelites. So their response was to put them into slavery. And they, um, the, more that, the more harshly they treated them, actually, the more they ended up resenting them, which is a whole other sermon in and of itself. But here's a concept of slavery. And here's why it's so important as we understand this concept of sin. To be in slavery means that you are powerless to do what you choose to do. You are powerless. Like You can't wake up in the morning as a slave and say, you know what? I don't want to do that. And certainly, if you say that, it will not be without consequences. So, and this is found all throughout the New Testament, actually, when people talk about uh, slavery as it, pertains to, as it pertains to sin, they talk about it in these words. And this is what a man named Paul says. Paul says this in Romans 7. It's a pretty uh, famous passage of scripture. He says this, verse 21, I have a desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. So I find it to be a principle with me that when I most want to do good, Evil is there with me. And in verse 14, he says, I am sold as a slave under sin. So Paul is talking about this dynamic where he's saying, I want to do the right thing. I really want to. But the more I try, the more I realize that I'm powerless. Now, I can see a lot of y'all right now through the camera. And I know you're rolling your eyes and you're saying, you know what? See, this is my beef with Christians. Y'all always talk about all this sin stuff. And I'm actually, I'm actually pretty good on that. Like I'm, a, I'm content where I am. I feel pretty good about my life. I feel like I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't feel powerless to do what's right. Yes, I make mistakes every now and then, but I wouldn't say that I'm powerless. You're taking this a little bit too far. And here's what I want to say to you. Two things. One, you are probably a nice person if you're saying that to yourself. I don't think you're delusional in saying that you think that you're a nice person, but I think it's because... We're misunderstanding what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. And for a lot of us, we have the wrong bullseye. Growing up in um, going to our family reunions every year, the first night, what we would do is whip out the Monopoly box and we would dust the, uh, blow off the dust off the top of it. We would sit down, six or seven of us would play. And yo, I ain't gonna hold you. My brother is the best Monopoly player on the planet. Like I have no idea how he did it. But that dude would win like 90% of the time he would win in Monopoly. 
And it didn't matter what happened. Before I knew it, all I had was like the dark purples. I had hotels on them though. I had the dark purples and this dude had like blocks, blocks and blocks, and he would win. And this dude would have a fistful of those orange $500 bills. Now, as dope as he was and as dope as he was feeling, uh, slaying all of us in Monopoly, he couldn't take that handful of Monopoly money and go to Bank of America or to go to Chase because they don't accept that currency. If he was to try to bring his Monopoly money to a real bank, that money doesn't have any backing. It's not, it's not really worth anything. Yes, he was killing all of us in Monopoly, but if he were to take it to the real thing, it would not have counted. For a lot of us, we feel really good because when we look around, we're doing better than most other people. But if we were to compare ourselves to take it to the real thing, the real bullseye, I think we would see how much we are missing the mark. Now, this past week, for a lot of us, has been um, a roller coaster of emotions. And for a lot of us, it's been um, so much stuff going on nationally, internationally, shootings, sickness, pandemic, all these things. But one of the things that I realized about Jordan Rice, I won't generalize about you, is I was thinking about this one scripture where Jesus is about to be crucified and he's being punched, spit on, laughed, laughed at, and he prays. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And as I was thinking about that scripture, I was like, yo, this dude, like he, this is love, man. Like this, this right here is like a perfect love. I don't, I don't want that for my enemies. I want my enemies to suffer. I want my enemies to pay. When Jordan compares his goodness, his righteousness to Ricky, I come out on top. When I compare my righteousness to Jesus, I see that I am harmartia. I am missing the mark. And I've never hit that mark. I've never even gotten close to that mark. So when the Bible says that you and I miss the mark, that we're sinners and sinners from birth, and, and there's something inside of us that always leads us in, this, in the opposite direction of what God is calling us to do, no matter how hard we try, that we're powerless to hit the mark, I think if we took an honest look at Jesus' life, we would say, yeah, you know what? You're right. I am powerless to live that life. And that is a life that God calls the bullseye. Now, how can you and I do something about it, right? So I'm not going to send you all home and say, all right, we're sinners, slaves to sin. See you next week. Um, make, sure you make sure you tune in. What can we do? And thankfully for us, Scripture gives us some answers on how we can experience the freedom that God offers us because God does truly offer us freedom. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to admit that you and I need an intervention from God. So here's what we see in the book of Exodus. In the third chapter, uh, we see that what they had been doing, the children of Israel, they were enslaved in sin, uh, enslaved, I'm sorry, by Egypt. And um, this is what we see them doing. It says in verse seven of chapter three, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to, uh, from the power, to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The first thing that we see about the children of Israel, what they did is they were bringing their requests upward to God. They knew that they could never break the power of the Egyptians on their own. And I think a lot of us, we would do very well to instead of always thinking about ourselves and what we could do, 
to turn our attention and our focus back to God because he is the one that can actually provide freedom. I was talking last Sunday to one of our amazing teenagers in our virtual lobby, and she asked me a question that I didn't have a great answer for on Sunday, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And she asked me, well, what do you do to stop beating yourself up after you've messed up or sinned? And I gave her some answer, and I was thinking about it, and I was saying, well, actually, my approach was completely wrong. My approach had all to do about all the things that Jordan could do to change my behavior. In a lot of ways, I think when I'm wallowing in guilt and self-pity and I'm angry at myself, in a lot of ways, I'm believing that ultimately I can change and I can do it on my own. So if I beat myself up enough, if I read another book, if I make this DNA class, then I'm going to do it. Instead of saying, God, I admit that I cannot do this on my own. So I'm going to turn away from looking at me and my mistakes, and I'm going to look to you. So number one, admit your, um, your inability on your own. The second thing we need to do is we need to realize that God's work in our lives is ongoing. God's life in our, God's work in our lives is ongoing. Now, when scripture talks about sin and salvation, generally it talks about it in two different ways. So there is the penalty of sin and there is the power of sin. The penalty of sin is always something called separation. Separation is something that you've seen in your own friendships, in your own relationships. Whenever someone sins against you, it brings a separation. Some of you have had friends growing up and you're no longer friends or you've been in relationships because someone sinned. And as soon as sin happens, there's separation. We see this in Isaiah 59 and two, where it says, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, when we talk about what Jesus has come to do, Jesus immediately rescues us and ends the separation between us and God. So there is no more penalty for our sin. Now, sin always brings separation, but it tells us the gift of God in Jesus Christ. It says this in Ephesians 2, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. Now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who, are, who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it says that there's two different ways. One is from the penalty of sin. To have received Christ means that he has completely removed the separation between you and him. Now, quick announcement for our baptism celebration that's going to be happening on November 7th. And we have a baptism class that is a prerequisite for that on October 22nd, I believe. You can register for everything, all of those things at our renaissancenyc.com backslash connect if you want to engage with God uh, in that way to experience God's liberating power in your life over the penalty of sin. And you want to say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life and I want to give you that. So that's November, uh, November 7th and October 22nd, respectively. So that is how God saves us from the penalty of sin. There is a second part, which is much more gradual. It's not instantaneous like that. It is the, how God saves us from the power of sin. And the power of sin is sin's ability to take you off of the mark. It's the thing that makes you do what you don't want to do. How do you and I experience freedom from those things? Well, we experience those freedom from those things progressively. It doesn't just happen overnight. We see that God offers us power and freedom from our sins 
And that's a much more gradual way. Now, here's something really fascinating about the book of Exodus, and we're going to see this in the coming weeks as we look at the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt. Here's something crazy. God does this, this series of amazing things to free them from Egypt. But days and weeks and months and years and decades later, there's still Egypt inside of them. There's still something about them that's longing to go back, to go back to captivity, to go back to oppression. There's a scripture in the book of Numbers where it records the thoughts of what's going on. And it says, and Numbers is written a couple of decades after the Exodus happened. And it says, the Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers, melons, and leeks, and onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. And they wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now this is wild. They're reminiscing about the oxtails and the rice and peas and the cabbage that they had in, ex in, in Egypt, forgetting all about the 12 hour a day workload, that it wasn't free, it was nowhere near free. You were miserable, you were enslaved. And God, through miraculous works, freed you, but yet now you're, you're wanting to go back. Now that tells us two things. Number one, I think it reveals to us that following and obeying God sometimes just looks boring, right? So in verse five, they talk about, or verse six rather, it says, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing but this manna. Manna was God's daily provision for them. And they're saying, God, you know, this is, it's all right, I guess. It's not, it's not what I could have on my own. And I think we struggle with freedom from the power of sin because sometimes sin just looks very attractive. It looks very attractive and it feels good to clap back at somebody. It feels good to me. It might not feel good to you. At first it does at least. A lot of stuff that I struggle with feels good in a moment, even though it really actually is not providing me freedom. And number two, it, sin in some ways makes us forget about all of the terrible things associated uh, with it. So they wanted to go back to Egypt. Now here's why this is so important. Last week, we, I quoted my boy John O talking about the need for us to be historians and not detectives, that we would make the most sense of God as we study the past to see God's activity in previous times. And here's what the Exodus shows us about the nature of freedom. It shows us the messiness of being freed internally from the sinful patterns in our lives as well. So God freed them from the Egyptians, but there was still so much Egypt inside of them and took them decades to get rid of it to enter into where God wanted them to get to. And that's just the nature of our growth. And the reason this is so important is because I don't want you beating yourself up by thinking that your deliverance, your freedom is supposed to be instantaneous. It doesn't work that way. We see it all in all, all through the, the book of uh, Exodus and all through scripture. So many New Testament writers pick up on this theme that God's deliverance and salvation from the penalty of sin is instantaneous but the power of sin in our life is oftentimes much more gradual. It's real, but it's certainly gradual. Now, the third thing that we need to do to really experience freedom in our lives is we have to continually give ourselves to God. We have to continually give ourselves our time, our energy, our devotion, our focus to God. Uh, Romans 6, Paul says it like this, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin 
as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Here's what Paul is talking about in this scripture in Romans. Paul is implying that sin gains power in our lives the more we give ourselves over to it. Likewise, God gains power in our lives to free us the more we give ourselves over to God. Now, I've seen this in my own life uh, before I came to faith, actually. When I was in college, and shout out to Morgan State, um, I remember moving and operating in such a way that when I first got to college, I was trying to front like I was a tough guy because all of my friends were from these cool neighborhoods. My boy was from Marcy Projects. My other friend was from the Polo Grounds. My other boy was from the Eden Wall Projects in the Bronx. And I grew up across the street from a lake. So I started acting out and started really wilding out. And me and my friends got into a whole bunch of stuff. And eventually, at first, I can tell the difference. Like I knew that I wasn't a tough guy. But eventually, the line started to blur. So much so, I remember a couple of nights going out and really feeling like, yo, Jordan, like, dude, who are you? I remember one night, and this was one of the nights that actually led me to praying for the first time in, in years. I was in my dorm room, and my friends and I got into some stuff, and someone's mother gave, got my dorm room number and called me frantically asking me not to harm their child. And I remember just like it was yesterday saying, ma'am, and I called her ma'am, I said, ma'am, I, I would never harm your child. What kind of person do you think I am? And I remembered what we did that night. And I said, well, you're the kind of person that takes 10 of his drunk friends to go to someone's house and, and beat them up. That's, that's what kind of person you are. And as I was saying these words come out of my mouth, I realized how far I had gotten from where I was. And in so many ways, I had lost focus with who I was. The more I gave myself over to acting a fool, the more of a fool I became. Here's what Howard Thurman says about that. He says, the penalty of deception is to become a deception. In other words, the more you lie, the greater power that lying has over you, or the more you give yourself to anything, the greater power that that has over you. The more you offer yourself to materialism, the more power it has over you. The more you offer yourself to, to lust, the more power it has over you. The more you offer yourself to judgment and clapping back, the more power it has over you. The more power, the more you offer yourself to people pleasing, the list goes on and on and on. But the opposite is also true. The more we avail ourselves and offer ourselves to God through the, the, the means of, uh, they call, they call the means of grace, scripture and reading and community. Uh, these are, you know, they could be referred to as disciplines and discipline to me is not something that sounds fun. Um, the, in my brain, they are the means of grace that God wants to meet us and transform us. And part of the reason we're not experiencing the freedom is because we are not accepting the means of grace that he has given us to free us. And that means spending quality time with God, making sure that we are prioritizing our spiritual walk with him, because the more we offer ourselves to God, the more we will experience freedom. And number four, we have to be in the constant rhythm of confession. Another means of grace that God gives us is community and this ability to confess our sins, not just to him, but also to other people. One of the greatest antidotes or vaccines or treatments for sin in our lives to experience freedom is this thing called confession. It's not always easy to do at first, but it does lead to freedom. There's two scriptures I want to leave you with this week. 
The first would be an amazing memory verse for you. And it comes in 1 John 1, 8 through 9. It says this, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Forgiving us would be good enough, but God goes an extra mile and says that God, if you confess your sins to him, he will forgive you and he will cleanse you. One of the ways that God cleanses us is not just by ourselves, but also sometimes through community that we receive this. So much so that James picks up on this thought in James 5 and 16. He says this, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. What James knew and what we have seen so many times is that sin is like mold. It grows like wildfire when it's in the dark, but when it is exposed to the light, it shrinks in its power and you and I are able to experience a freedom that God wants for us. So this week, what I want you to do is in your DNA groups, for those of you in DNA groups, I want you to put this into practice like now. If you can't do it in front of the whole group, reach out to one person from the group and make sure that you are doing what James 5.16 says. If we want to experience freedom, this progressive, gradual freedom of God leading us to where he wants us, wants us to be, it's going to happen sometimes only through confession. So let me pray for us uh, before we are being bold and courageous uh, and following Jesus this week. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your spirit and for your words to us. And I just pray for everyone this week who is engaging with one another. And Lord, I'm just so grateful for this big uh, topic of, of sin. I hope that uh, in us understanding it better, we would see you more clearly. So Lord, give us courage this week to follow after you. Give us clarity to understand ourselves and to understand you better. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.